This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is the one-year Bible reading for July 31st. We are starting today in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And we finally have the good king Hezekiah following after King Ahaz, who has just died. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became the king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. In the very first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He summoned the priests and Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. He said to them, Listen to me, you Levites. Purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned the Lord and his temple. They turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the Lord's foyer and they snuffed out the lamps. They stopped burning incense and presenting burnt offerings at the sanctuary of the God of Israel. That is why the Lord's anger has fallen upon Judah and Jerusalem. He has made us an object of dread, horror, and ridicule, as you so plainly see. Our fathers have been killed in battle, and our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. But now I will make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My dear Levites, do not neglect your duties any longer. The Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to lead the people in worship and make offerings to him. Then these Levites got right to work from the clan of Kohath, Mahath, son of Amasai, and Joel, son of Azariah. From the clan of Merari, Kish, son of Abdi, and Azariah, son of Jehalalel. From the clan of Gershon, Joah, son of Zimna, and Eden, son of Joah. From the family of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jael. From the family of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mattaniah. From the family of Heman, Jael, and Shimei. From the family of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uziel. These men called together their fellow Levites, and they purified themselves. Then they began to purify the temple of the Lord, just as the king had commanded. They were careful to follow all the Lord's instructions in their work. The priests went into the sanctuary of the temple of the Lord to cleanse it, and they took out to the temple courtyard all the defiled things that they found. From there, the Levites carted it all out to the Kidron Valley. The work began on a day in early spring, and in eight days they had reached the foyer of the Lord's temple. Then they purified the temple of the Lord itself, which took another eight days. So the entire task was completed in seven days. Then the Levites went to King Hezekiah and gave him this report. We have purified the temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the table of the bread of the presence with all its utensils. 
We have also recovered all the utensils taken by King Ahaz when he was unfaithful and closed the temple. They are now in front of the altar of the Lord purified and ready for use. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials and went to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the temple, and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, who were descendants of Aaron, to sacrifice the animals on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Next, they killed the rams and sprinkled their blood on the altar, and finally they did the same with the lambs. The male goats for the sin offering were then brought before the king and the assembly of the people who laid their hands on them. The priests then killed the goats as a sin offering and sprinkled their blood on the altar to make atonement for the sins of all Israel. The king had specifically commanded that this burnt offering and sin offering should be made for all Israel. King Hezekiah then stationed the Levites at the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres. He obeyed all the commands that the Lord had given to King David through Gad, the king's seer, and the prophet Nathan. The Levites then took their positions around the temple with the instruments of David, and the priests took their positions with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah ordered that the burnt offering be placed on the altar. As the burnt offering was presented, songs of praise to the Lord began, accompanied by the trumpets and other instruments of David, king of Israel. The entire assembly worshipped the Lord as the singers sang and the trumpets blew until all the burnt offerings were finished. Then the king and everyone with him bowed down in worship. King Hezekiah and the ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with psalms of David and Asaph the seer. So they offered joyous praise and bowed down in worship. Then Hezekiah declared, The dedication ceremony has come to an end. Now bring your sacrifices and thanksgiving offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the people brought their sacrifices and thanksgiving offerings, and those whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings too. The people brought to the Lord 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs for burnt offerings. They also brought 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep as sacrifices. But there were too few priests to prepare all the burnt offerings, so their relatives the Levites helped them until the work was finished and until more priests had been purified. For the Levites had been more conscientious about purifying themselves. There was an abundance of burnt offerings along with the usual drink offerings and a great deal of fat from the many peace offerings. So the temple of the Lord was restored to service and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced greatly because of what God had done for the people for everything had been accomplished so quickly. Romans 14, 1 through 23. Accept Christians who are weak in faith and don't argue with what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it is all right to eat anything, but another believer who has a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who think it's all right to eat anything must not look down on those who won't. And those who won't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn God's servants? They are responsible to the Lord. Him tell them whether they are right or wrong. The Lord's power will help them to do as they should. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. 
Each person should have a personal conviction about this matter. Those who have a special for worshiping the Lord are trying to honor him. Those who eat all kinds of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who won't eat everything to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we are not our own masters when we live or when we die. While we live, we live to please the Lord. And when we die, we go to be with the Lord. So in life and in death, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, so that he might be Lord of those who are alive and of those who have died. So why do you condemn another Christian? Why do you look down on another Christian? Remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will have to give a personal account to God. So don't condemn each other anymore. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not put an obstacle in another Christian's path. I know and am perfectly sure on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another person is Christian is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be condemned for doing something you know is all right. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, or it strikes me whether we wear a mask or whether we don't wear a mask, right, in these days, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and other people will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear the of God over what you eat. Remember, there is nothing wrong with these things in themselves, but it is wrong to eat anything if it makes another person stumble. Don't eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another Christian to stumble. You may have the faith to believe that there is nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who do not condemn themselves by doing something they know is all right. But if people have doubts about whether they should eat something, they shouldn't eat it. They would be condemned for not eating in faith before God. But if you do anything uh, you believe is not right, you are sinning. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundations on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. Who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have right standing with God, their Savior. They alone may enter God's presence and worship the God of Israel. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. 
Proverbs 20, 12. Ears to hear and eyes to see. Both are gifts from the Lord. And to end today, we're going to look again into The Life You've Always Wanted with John Ortberg. And we are in the chapter called Interrupting Heaven, The Practice of Prayer. And yesterday we talked about sort of the how-to. Uh, so the foundation was the fact that our prayers actually have the ability and do interrupt heaven and gain God's attention. Um, and yesterday, the recommendation that Ortberg had to us was to have a set time for prayer and to limit it to five minutes a day. And then some other how-tos. Uh, he writes that Jesus took care to find places that would be free of distractions. And he writes, it is interesting that the Gospels record Jesus mostly praying outdoors in places of beauty. But it doesn't need to be outdoors. It could be inside. Um, it could be by a window. It could be a prayer closet. He said he, he always felt like it had to be a prayer closet, but it doesn't have to be a prayer closet. It could be a particular chair, some set-aside place. Over time, a space that is used again and again for prayer becomes sacred. He recommends choosing the best, the time of day to pray that you are at your best, whether that be the morning, the evening. He said when he runs prayer retreats, the biggest obstacle for a half day or full day prayer retreat are people falling asleep because we're so tired from this world. Um, so, and that it's important to take a few minutes to quote, allow the monkeys to settle down. He says you may want a physical object to focus your eyes on like a flower or a lit candle. You may simply want to whisper heaven a few times until your mind is composed enough to go on. But this is what I really want to focus on today, and it's what to pray about, and it's called simple prayer. What should we pray about? Whole books have been written on that subject, but this chapter is for beginners, so I want to focus on what Richard Foster calls simple prayer. The problem is that my mind has a steady stream of thoughts. Will I get a year-end bonus? Will the meeting I'm supposed to lead come off all right? What's for dinner? But none of those things seem spiritual. So I force myself to pray for things that seem nobler, missionaries and world peace, but there is a gap between what I am supposed to pray for and what I am really thinking about. Removing this gap is what simple prayer is all about. In simple prayer, I pray about what is really on my heart, not what I wish was on my heart. As Foster put it, we bring ourselves before God just as we are, warts and all. Like children before a loving father, we open our hearts and make our requests. We do not try to sort out the good from the bad. We tell God, for example, how frustrated we are with a coworker at the office or the neighbor down the street. We ask for food, favorable weather, and good health. You may wonder at offering God prayer that seems so trivial, even selfish. However, nothing kills prayer faster than when I pretend in prayer to be noble, more noble than I really am. Dallas Willard sees this, quote, prayer simply dies from efforts to pray about, quote, good things that honestly do not matter to us. The way to get to meaningful prayer for those good things is to start by praying for what we are truly interested in. The circles of our interest will inevitably grow in the largeness of God's love. Many people have found prayer impossible because they thought they should only pray for wonderful but remote needs they actually had little or no interest in, or even knowledge of. Simple prayer is the most common type of prayer in scripture. Jesus himself teaches it when he tells us to pray for our daily bread. 
Sometimes it looks non-spiritual, as when Gideon asks God to give him a few more reasons why he should trust him, or when Moses complains about his job description. Or, in a truly remarkable example, when Elijah prays to complain about a group of youths calling him Baldy. Take a look at 2 Kings 2.24. This doesn't seem like the prayer of a spiritual giant. Of course, I'd like to grow so that my concerns become increasingly less selfish, but prayer, like any other relationship, must begin in honesty, if it is to grow. C.S. Lewis wrote that in prayer, we must, quote, lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. So I hope you have a beautiful day. I hope you're able to set aside those five minutes in prayer and be able to speak to your Heavenly Father about whatever it is that's on your mind and heart. Love you all. See you tomorrow.